You're listening to the Brown Sign Project podcast. Do you spend hours creating your rotors and then spend days constantly adjusting them? We have the solution. At Staff Savvy, we specialise in shift schedules and timesheet solutions for visitor attractions. Easily manage multiple complex teams of permanent, casual, freelance and volunteer staff across different locations and disciplines. With fast communication features, automatic compliance tools, training management and simple timesheet tools, Staff Savvy has been used and trusted by organisations such as V&A Dundee, the Southbank Centre and the Royal Albert Hall, with great cost-saving benefits. Visit us at staffsavvy.com forward slash brown sign project to learn more and schedule a demo of our magic rotor button. Welcome to the Brown Sign Project, the podcast that talks to some of the most entertaining, experienced and influential voices in the tourism and attractions industry. I'm Carly Strawn. And I'm Carlton Gadgeton. In this episode, we're delighted to speak to Paul Griffin, who is the director of Payne Hills Park Trust. Paul knows a lot about taking care of special historical places and he has a wealth of experience in the heritage site and he'll be sharing all that information with us on this podcast. He loves what he does and enthusiasm for the people he works with is infectious. As well as giving us his top tips for growing your career, he highlights the need for a sense of humour. And you really have to hear the story about the incident at the Tom Jones concert. It's a definite must listen. And thanks, of course, must go to our series sponsors, Staff Savvy and Retail Integration. Now on to our chat with Paul. Hi, everyone. Today we're speaking to Paul Griffiths, Director of Paints Hill. Paul, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You're very welcome. Um, would you mind telling our lovely listeners who you are and, and what you do? Yeah, of course. Well, my name's Paul Griffiths. Um, since November of 2018, I've been the Director of the Paints Hill Park Trust. And what does being a director mean? Like, what do you do day to day? Gosh, that's a really tricky question. Where do I start with that one? Um, well, I mean, I oversee everything that the trust does. I feed into a, a board of trustees and form. And so in other organisations, I might be called a chief executive um, or director, very similar terms, of course. So I have a brilliant senior leadership team that sits you know, with me working on running all the different areas of Payne's Hill. So I have heads of um, landscape, which you'd expect from a landscape garden. We'll probably talk a bit more about what Payne's Hill is later. Uh, Director of finance, uh, head of commercial and operations, which was his post that you know, we all know lots of about. Um, head of fundraising, head of marketing, head of education. So those teams, and then that spans out into all their wonderful teams as well. So you know, lots of people, well, not lots because we're quite a small team, but you know, people were working on the on the Paint Hill uh, Park and the, and the charity that we are. Maybe maybe fewer people than people expect, but definitely more skills than uh, probably should really belong to that many people. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, we've got about probably twenty five staff that are with us all the time, and then a number of um, I hate the term, but casual staff who, who you know work in a tea room in, in seasonal stuff like that. So. You know, we, we are ably supported by an absolutely amazing team of volunteers. We have about 250, 260 volunteers. The number changes regularly one way and the other because people do come and go. But we have a brilliant team of volunteers that we can work without. As you see so much across the, um, the sort of heritage organisations in, in, in whole, we're always so reliant on, on wonderful volunteers to support our work. Awesome. That sounds really cool. So um, this kind of leads me on to a really cool question. So you're now a director, but I would like to find out kind of how do you start? How do you get started in your career? What did you do? Well, it's um, it's an often told tale, but it's a really easy one for me. I I went off when I was young. I wanted to go into sort of uh, sports and, or leisure management. Particularly, I was really keen on sort of going. I love sport. And I thought, if I, I know I'm not good enough to go and play football or cricket or anything like that. So. I looked at doing sort of sports administration and I was thinking, well, how can I get a job as a sort of commercial manager at a football club or something of that that nature? So I set off to university to study leisure management, which was leading, it was a sort of pure sort of leisure and her- leisure and um, sports or management course uh, with a wild variety of different people. It was the first year the course had ever been run at, at Riddle University. So it was a real different sort of place to be. Um, during that, we had to do a bit of work uh, experience. We went off for a month during a summer term of our first year. And I um, was no idea what I wanted to do whatsoever. And I got in touch with a few places, one of which was Heber Castle. And uh, they 
wonderfully uh, invited me down there. Um, I got to work with a chap called Piers, who was the visitor, visitor operations manager, I guess. I'm sure that's his title. I might be got that wrong, but he was just the most uh, inspiring person to spend a month with. His role was looking after everything that opened operationally within the castle. So, you know, our day would be going out in the morning, going from yeah, a team meeting in the morning, but then going from shop to cafe to ticket office to everything that we know that happens in operations. We had a, a brilliant event while I was there where we put lots of flowers in the castle and I found myself driving this tiny little van around picking up local women's institutes, flower displays. And, you know, I was given the keys. I'd never driven a van before and suddenly I was in this funny van. You can't, no, no sort of um, way of seeing out the back. It was a real sort of um, experience. But I absolutely loved it. And it was just the, the best sort of month ever. The sun shone throughout the whole, you know, it was that, if you could pick a sort of time to spend in a glorious heritage site with wonderful gardens and you're just, you know, walking from side to side. I was there sort of not seven days a week, but obviously it got eye opening that weekends the busiest time. So, you know, Piers was like, well, why don't you take, don't come in on Monday, but come on Sunday. So you see how that was. You're a perfect person to learn from. Um, and I went back to uni. We at that point had to pick um, a pathway, if you like. So we, we have leisure management core modules and then we all had to choose a, a different pathway. And one of them available was heritage management. It's brand new. It's the first time it ever been done. Um, and I thought I'll give that a go because I've loved working in this heritage environment. And so did that. So my degree is in her- leisure and heritage management. And, you know, started applying from a jobs whilst um, at uni. We didn't have a great deal then of um, employability stuff, which I think is something that unis do so well now. And I, I did some work with um, a lot of work with Solent University in my previous jobs where I am now. And it was great because we were working with students all the time and bringing them into the museum, giving them really good projects and stuff that I know because some of them still keep in touch that they've been able to use for their careers and, you know, getting further for their careers, which is brilliant. But, you know, I was applying for jobs that I had looking at now. I didn't have a hope of getting, you know, man- management jobs of sites and things. You think, well, no one would take you on without any experience. So in the end, I was really lucky and got a, a basically an admin job with um, English Heritage in what was their head office, well, one of their two head offices then, it was just across the road from Selfridges on, Re- and on Oxford Street. Um, and I was working with the Quantity Vein team. So it was a, and it was a, it was the, it couldn't have been a lower job. And I, I don't you know, it was a, it was, it was booking train tickets. It was doing the post. And it was in the days where every post that came in had to be stamped and logged. And you know, we show how far we're going back here. Um, but once I was in English Heritage, the great thing was most jobs had to be advertised internally first. So I was constantly, and every week there was a, days before the internet or email, but a, a hard copy through the internal mail would come the jobs file, you know, whenever it was, all the jobs that are available internally. And I'd be scouring through because I only had a short-term contract. I was covering maternity leave. And um, finally got this job um, at Downhouse, the home of Charles Darwin, and which hadn't opened to the public. It had been, you know, it had been closed and English Church was taking it on and done a major restoration project. And it was recruiting. I sort of went and start, and I got this job. It was brilliant. It was um, sounds a weird title. It was called senior custodian, although there was no just custodian, so we weren't senior to anyone. And the reason we had that fabulous title was it meant once you were a senior custodian, you could handle money um, and therefore cash up and do jobs like that. You know, so um, I absolutely had an amazing two years. Stop me if I'm going into too much detail here, won't you? Because I realise I'm rambling. No, on, no, we're, but, um, um, we're loving it. It's brilliant. But, but um, I had a wonderful tease. I opened somewhere to the public the first time was something that I then had to do quite a few times in my career. So it was a real great chance. But this job was one of those, and it, and in real, you couldn't have a better grounding in operations in many ways because it was, you had to do everything that needed doing. We had no cleaners. So one of the tasks first thing in the morning, we sort of had four or five jobs that we took on a weekly rotation basis, one of which was cleaning the public toilets every morning, uh, one of which was hoovering the house, one of which was going around and doing all the glass because there was so much glass and cabinets and stuff that they need to do. And then we'd, you know, try and gather for a 15-minute cup of tea if we could before we opened. Well, we always did. Um, and then it was, you know, into the public, and that could be working on the front desk, you know. Greet- One of the things I loved doing then was greeting coach parties. I love that, getting on a, a coach and saying, welcome, this is what's going to happen. I'm splitting you into groups because the house is small. And I'd had some wonderful times with people. It was just so... Fabulous! Oh, getting, getting emotional looking back at this. It was so it was, you know, it had its, oh, but it had its hard side though. And I think this is one of the things I think your your um your listeners and some of your young listeners might wrestle with. That sort of um thinking, right? Well, I've done this now. I need to go into a management job, 
And I kept going for management jobs, deputy manager jobs, because all sites then had a head custodian, deputy head custodian or site manager. They were very funny old titles in the age in those days. And um, but kept being turned down for this sort of like you haven't got uh, you haven't got your management experience was always the reason. And I was like, how do you get that if you can't get for the deputy job? You know, you think it was the obvious route in. Um, and I was really fortunate. We had a, an amazing volunteer uh, at Downhouse called Jeff, who's sadly not with us anymore. He was he had the most fascinating career. He'd been a nuclear scientist, and you know, done. He was he was if you flicked in who's who, he appeared in there. So it was, but he was the most amazing man who sort of took my case under his wing, if you like, and was like, well, get, he got really frustrated. I was coming back for these jobs, and I'm getting like, right. How do we? And he really took the time to spend with me working on. You know, where actually where you might have had some management experience. And this is one of the things I found myself saying to, to students again, you know, when you were at uni, did you head up a team that was working on a project? Oh, most people go, Yeah, I did. I, I was team leader. There you go. Perfect example. Were had you have you captained the netball, football, rugby team? Oh yeah, I've done that. Right, okay. So therefore you've been managing people, you know, you're you're taking on these tasks that so make some more of that or where you've actually taken on jobs within your own role. And it was so brilliant, Jeff, that got me thinking of these things and because downhouse we all had to do everything so we was always doing little projects and i can remember trying to negotiate bt to get the price of our lot well to get a get the internet working because in those days it was dialed up at all sorts um and trying to get the phone you know things like this you just say they're really good examples of where you can use and yeah. you know where things so i went from and i eventually got a job as the head custodian uh, which was you know site manager if you like at the jewels tower which is the oldest surviving bit of the palace of westminster so if you watch the news on you know bbc i tell you they've always been interviewed behind the uh by the jewel tower it's a fascinating little site and i spent a year there and it was my first management job managing people um you know so lots of things you had to learn in that obviously and you know and growing up, I think I was still only in my early twenties, and so you, you know, you think you know everything, don't you? But you really don't, and quickly learn that you don't when people tell you so. I, I was fortunate then to get a job of site manager of Wellington Arch, um, and that was another not been open to the public before, and that was just an absolute. It was a really sort of one of those changing life because I'd moved, not long moved out of home to Ellie and I sort of moved. That's why my wife we'd, we'd moved in together. So it was like it's really weird change of life sort of moving into a little flat and suddenly living outside of your parents life and at the same time as getting this really for me then and I still have about like massive jump for jobs be running this this big site and, and that was going you know I had to go and recruit my own team and train develop open and then it was also the first site the H had where it was just as important for the hospitality side in the evening as it was for the visitor side so we had there's myself and the hospitality manager Fiona who were just like and this duo of people having to run this site that was suddenly open all hours, if you like, and no one had really come across that before. So, you know, we was in at eight and working till two in midnight, two in the morning with, you know, dinners and parties, events, and really was became one of the tastes of London because this was pre, you know, the crashes and the recessions that we had. This was 2001 and everyone had money to spend. So every company under the sun was having glorious parties. Um, I've just got, a, I'm going to interrupt you for a second, Paul, because you yeah. said something quite interesting that I think I just want to touch on because actually you answered my next question already. But that milestone in your life of, you know, you you met your now wife, you, you've you moved out of home and you've got a job suddenly that feels like a real job. You know, I think all of us sort of have that early 20s maybe experience, maybe later later in the 20s where you think, oh, this is this is the job, right? This is this is the job now I've I've kind of got to somewhere or it feels quite significant and I, I certainly remember that and I'm, I'm sure Cartwheel is it but as you sort of get older and further away from that you realize actually there's going to be lots of those significant milestones in your life yeah, <laughs> and absolutely do you could you sort of talk us talk to us about maybe the other jumps that you've done so where you've sort of felt oh you know that was kind of that yeah. job what was the next job that I, you know, I sort of went, you know, oh, that's the next it, big leap for me. What, what came, what Yeah, that? it was funny that you should say that because that, the big leap for me in that Wellington Arts job, I was 25 at the time, so 2001, was that I moved out being in a uniform because I'd been oh, in my job. Oh, that's now, yes. And my job at, um, and I have nothing against you. I mean, I have people walk out now with paint or fleece, I'm about thinking of it, but I was suddenly in shirt, tie, suit, 
going from a quite a flat that we were renting, you know, um, we managed to get really good terms because it was still a building site, most of the rest of the place they're doing, because it's a new development. We got it for a couple of years and it was fab. Um, but you know what I mean? I was suddenly going out, like I felt like I was going to a proper place of work, not in khaki trousers and, and EH uniform is so much better now. By the time it was that sort of like khaki shirt with checks, you know, really country feel. And yeah, so suddenly I'd got into that. And that was a big leap in that weird, for me mentally, I was suddenly there, I was working in London. It felt hip and cool and, you know, that's I wouldn't really and I I wouldn't have actually now because when you said that that also would have been I I would have worn uniform on and off up to that point but that was certainly the first like the first job that I have that feeling about was certainly that you know felt like oh I get to wear my own clothes now I get to have a bit of yeah. independence and I wonder how many people that resonates with that'd be really interesting I need to go shopping at you know and buy some nice shirts and ties and stuff yeah, yeah no it's a but you yeah. asked a question about other leaps. So I yeah, was, was fortunate. Um, I was very fortunate in, 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 to be in the right place at the right time. And this happened to me a couple of times. I must confess, luck is, comes into a lot of things, I think. But um, I should tell you another story. I'm sorry about this. Well, when I went for my interview, I bought this really, to be then, I don't know what it is, a really nice grey suit in like a really nice man shop. You know, and those sort of probably, probably was only 90 quid. But, you know, it felt really a bit different to a plane suit it was really and i've worked for the first time for the interview and it was the days of uh, bus conductors and those old route master buses i was getting the bus back to the jewel tower and the guy said it was a really great fun sort of obviously conductor and he said oh where have you been going and i said oh, i've just been for an interview he said with that suit you've definitely got the job and i got it it was just like you know that sort of nice people to bump into in life and i was just like oh that's that's lovely um go back to what i saying. so yeah so on my um Later in my career, my boss got promoted and I was um, to, to sort of a head of visitor operations role. She'd, um, well, no, she'd got it. She then went into the area regional director from the head of visitor operations role. And I was literally just going on holiday. It was about five to five. She rang me up on a Friday night and I thought she was just going to say, have a nice holiday because she was very, well, she still is a very lovely person. But, you know, at the time, you know, something, she said, oh, and tell me this news. I've just been promoted this role as acting role. And so, all right, brilliant. Well, congratulations. She said, right, so, when you get back from your holiday, I'm going to need you to act into my role because there's no one else to do that. And we'll both just be acting up for six months and then while they decide what they're going to do for recruitment. And I thought, like, oh, right. Great, you know, never say no to anything. And um, so I ended up sort of acting in a role that I don't think I would have applied for if it had been advertised because I wouldn't have thought I was the right person or level for that job. But then, of course, found myself doing it for six months, getting into it, learning it. And so then when it was advertised, and it went out externally advertised, that was a bit of a not thing. You know, right? They obviously think that, you know. But actually, I later heard that you know, they just wanted to prove that, well, if I got it, that I'd beaten anyone else that had gone for it. So, um, which I hadn't thought at the time. I was just cursing, thinking if I'd been internal, I don't know. <laughs> but, but of course, that, you know, it was just that luck of being there and having that job and then getting this job, which and it was slightly bigger than the one I've been acting in. And that was a huge step because suddenly I was, you know, running half the London sites. And London then was split into London North and London South for AH. And I was, uh, what was I called then? Head of Visitor Experience, Head of Visitor Operations, London North. Uh, and I merrily cut away with that job running the central London sites and Kenwood House up in Hampstead. And then um, the guy who was running London South um, left and he, he left quite quickly for various reasons. Um, and so we had another one of these moments where my, my boss said, Rebecca, and I was speaking on the phone on, again late on a Friday evening, trying to work out how we were going to cover this situation with uh, the person who'd left. And, and she was like, well, do you want to, can you just go down and run London South a bit? And I said, well, I don't really want to do that, but why don't I just do both and just rely on the managers on the site to all step up as well and we'll all just... And she was like, oh, you can't do that. And I said, well, yeah, I'm sure I can. So we had the weekend to think about it. I went out with um, that night with two of my, my business services managers who went to the pub in Hampstead. And they were both like, we're really worried about you doing this because this is a vast, you know, this is a lot of work. And I was like, yeah, but you guys are great. So I can leave you here to crack on and not have to worry about Kenwood because you guys are brilliant. And I know the team elsewhere. They've had a, they've had a rocky time for various reasons, but they'd be cool. Um, and so Monday we agreed to do it. And I, so I started just doing the whole of London. And of course, again, then that rolled into being a permanent job because I was just doing it on an acting basis because they were going to recruit all the time. But in the end, we we settled on doing it full time and loved it. So again, that sort of strange, like being right place, right time. Something I had this much bigger job. It became the area man an area manager job, and it was just I had the most you know amazing four years in it. I think um, 
I was rubbish, and I still am a bit rubbish at diary management. But it was even more rubbish than when you were trying to get around to different <laughs> sites in London. Um, and you know what it's like. You're trying, you, you greet, I was greeting stuff in North London at 10 o'clock and saying, oh, yeah, I've been South East London at 2. And, of course, not <laughs> home. Yeah, right. There, so. <laughs> but luckily, I had an absolutely amazing team. Most of where well, we are all still in touch with each other. They were a brilliant bunch. And so they all just got what we were trying to do. And we just formed such a great working relationship. And everyone... You know, we, we were managing to as well include a lot of the more junior managers in that. People that you go, right, they've got real skills. How do we get them, or how do we second them into another site? And how do we get them getting those skills and experience that, you know, they've all been able to go on and do great stuff. And, you you know, I love it when you bump into someone and say, oh, you gave me this job and you did this. It's just such a nice thing, isn't it? And, um, yeah. yeah. That's an interesting thing as well, like you said, because one of the things, you know, we talk about when we talk about careers is there is a lot of just being in the right place at the right time. Mm. And you can improve your chances by saying yes to things. So, you know, like you said, that it might not have seemed like a job you might apply for because it maybe felt too big or, but there's no harm in in trying a job for six months. And if you don't like it, going and doing something else, I think to, to not be too afraid of failing, if, as long as, you know, you've got the support around you and, and you can sort of humbly bow out if it's, if it's not the quite quite the right thing, yeah. but you get a lot I mean, of opportunities that, that way. Well, that's something I'd say. And I've heard other guests on your podcast say it's a lot, you know, just you, you say yes to things because, as you said, actually, what's the worst thing that we get a bit of experience or you, you know, you, you show someone you can do it or you think this isn't for me and maybe I'm not, this isn't where I want to be. But I think we all find you step into stuff and you think, actually, I can do this. Well, I didn't, have, you know, I wouldn't have trusted for myself, you know, I, I think we all, well, we don't necessarily, but, you know, more people than ever recognise, get the old imposter syndrome. I still get it a lot now, you know, different stuff and have to, you know, think, well, but actually I'm here because I've done this or, you know, I've been asked to come and sit on this committee by the local council and sit amongst local councillors or whatever and people think they've, they've, they've asked me to do it. So they must have thought I've got the skills and ability to do it. Introducing Meridian Experience from Retail Integration, the leading multi-channel ticketing, retail and membership system for visitor attractions. Working with visitor attractions for over 25 years, Retail Integration have developed the ultimate solution that enables some of Ireland's leading visitor attractions manage every aspect of their business, from ticketing and admissions to merchandising, food and loyalty programs in one single system. Customer experience is at the heart of what we do. Contact us today and let retail integration help you to exceed visitor expectations. We listen, we develop, we deliver. You've got a worth of knowledge, a worth of experience in the amount of different locations you, you've worked at in the UK. So I just kind of wanted to talk about a couple of top tips that you can share with our listeners. Like what, what let's say three top tips that would be really cool for people to get into the tourist attraction industry that you can share with us. I think there's that first one. We've just been talking about this, but just the not to try and say yes to stuff. I think it's really important. And don't, I hate the phrase jobs worth, but don't say, well, that's not my job description. No, I'm not. It's below my, it's above my pay grade or any of that. I, I hate all those phrases. And I hate hearing them. You know, it's just because I actually, I think most people can, I can get why people think, well, actually, I'd like to do something extra for doing it. I get that. And I've been very fortunate, you know, I've agreed to stuff without thinking about financial gain. And then my managers have said, you know, we'll pay you 10% more for doing this, won't you? And I'm like, well, I'd actually thought of that. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Because um, for me, it's just about, well, actually, I can take on that extra experience or I can take on that extra job or, you know, or, or take on extra challenges. Um, so I think that's the thing is, is just don't, for people coming in, don't be thinking, oh, it's not my job description. Oh, it's not. Oh, because actually, anything you can do to show your managers that you're, really willing to muck in. I think and I think in an operational side that's still so important because, you know, attractions still running on a shoestring in many cases and need you to have you turn your hand to everything. I mean, you know, we were talking earlier looking back on my first job in the sort of business operations world. And that's what you had we had to do. Everything that had to come up in the day to day running of that attraction was down to us and the te- the little team we had. And it was, you know, you relied on each other and that's where you you know you learn so many things. So I think that's important. I think um, trying to get knowledge of the organisation you're working for is so vital as well. And and in many ways, of course, if you're working in the heritage world, a history of it as well, because people always expect you to know it. But I think, um, you know, learning 
particularly coming into the industry, learn about the sort of, you know, expected etiquettes of the, the business, you know, what, what's, what is expected in terms of dress code? And I know that sounds a bit old fashioned, but, you know, you, you can't necessarily dress as you might do down the pub when you're at work. You know, you've got to accept that. I really struggle with, for, the, for those people who don't know me personally, <laughs> I can be quite an outrageous dresser. I like patterns. You know, I, we went to see a show this weekend about a guy who was obsessed with Disney and, and putting on parades when he was a kid and stuff. And um, I, I'm sure it's not offensive to anyone, but it's called My Son's a Queer, But What Can You Do? And my mum took me and, and my mum said, oh, you know, I sort of about having a, a queer son. And I said, well, you know, it's fine because you, you you just you got a queer son for a daughter, fortunately, um, is that, you know, I love all that stuff. I love the garishness and the drag queenness and the whatever. But there's times where that's appropriate. There's times when it's not. And I think even even if there is no dress code, I like to be told, where can I get away with that appropriateness? I will never wear a suit to work. I'd be very clear about it. And I really don't particularly like um, crappy uniform. I like a good uniform. I think everyone should go to work and feel I agree. <laughs> but I do think it's really important for people to know, actually, you know, I, and maybe some of it's a little bit... Um, that fear of not knowing if you'll fit in or whatever is just to say, you know, are we, are we a casual team? Are we a jeans team? Can I wear trainers? Is the, you know, even if there is no dress code, sometimes mm. it's just nice to be told what the expectation is, even if it's not always a suit and tie. Well, I'm I'm going to an event tomorrow night and earlier on today, I emailed the guy who invited me and asked him what the dress code was because I you know, still now I want to know, is it suit and tie? And I will have, you know, I, I I don't often wear a suit and tie to work anymore because I'm in a garden environment. Mm. Um, but I'd normally be in a shirt and chinos or something of that nature with a jacket, a blazer lined up to put on when I need to. But, you know, I still don't. And still sometimes put a suit and tie. Oh, actually, I forgot how nice this was, actually. It looked quite smart. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm still always really nervous about turning up to something and thinking, oh, everyone else is in a suit and tie and I've come in jeans and a, you know, blazer or, or vice versa, you know, all the other way around. No one's in a suit and I'm still doing a suit and everyone else is in shorts and T-shirt. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, yeah. you know, it's always, I mean, it's that, it's that wanting to fit in, isn't it? But I think that's, a, you know, I'd always say to people that's advice, you know, you've got to, you know, you've got to fit in in the worst possible way. And it sounds awful to say this, but you do need to try and fit in in the workplace because you don't want to be so out there that you just, you well, know. And I'd also people... suggest that if, if you don't fit in, in that sense, maybe it's not the right workplace. Is well, that, possibly, yeah. Is that, you know, if you're not a suit and tie person and you are going to work in an investment bank, and maybe I'm doing a disservice to investment bankers here, but, you know, that maybe it's not the environment for you. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's, you know. And so tip number three. I think learning is so important of this, but things so different now. Things like this podcast that you guys are doing is an amazing service for people in our industry. You know, the one that uh, Robert Cheese and Kelly will do of Skip Q. Brilliant. What a thing to have had. I'd love to be listening to. I mean, I love listening to all these things now of other people's careers and tips and advice. And the amount of times I go away and think, right, I need to think about that. Or that's a brilliant piece. Or I need to go and visit that site or follow up with a person and say, can I come and see you, please? Because actually, you're doing something that I'd really want to do. Um, and again, I think our industry is is amazing for that that you know you can ring someone up and you could say can I come and have a coffee with you and they will say normally yes and then normally also say well then tell you whatever you want to know you know visitor numbers spend you know people aren't um nervous of that sort of business in in the heritage and operation I think if you're a bit more in the commercial field if you're working for someone like Warner Brothers or Merlin I think that becomes a very different field but if you're working for a small attraction or heritage base particularly people are so open show I mean, you think about people who come on your show and, and and reveal all sorts and people who go on skip the queue and say all sorts of things and, and just telling you know what they've been doing and it's just i find that you know such a resource that wasn't there sorry i'm putting on over free tips but i think that sort of don't be scared to ask someone for help is so crucial because most people will give you half an hour on a zoom call now and they don't even have to go meet or you know we'll direct you towards a mentoring scheme that ace are running or something of that nature you know where you can get you know real help and real career guidance well that leads me to my next question paul um it's, it's talking about where do we kind of learn um more about the industry so can you kind of share us 
of what you do to kind of get yourself on trend and what's happening? Yeah. So, so, so I subscribe to lots of these, uh, like yeah, Blue Loops Daily Notice is great because there's there's ten things that are happening every day and you know there is free content. You know you haven't even had to join, so you've had to sign up to one mailing list, and then you've got the, all these experts writing on a daily basis about what's happening, and that's um, you know I, I'm in the heritage world and I always have been in heritage, but I've always looked at the commercial world as well for, but actually I couldn't afford that, but what are they doing? Or, you know, how does Disney's customer service and the way they weren't run that, I mean, it's just, you know, other podcasts I've listened to around, um, you know, um, Dan and Lee Cockrell, two guys who I just find amazingly inspiring people. I was really fortunate during lockdown to, be accepted on something that Dan did where he had brought together sort of 20 people from around the world just to talk about the industry and leadership and all that sort of stuff. So really was fascinating what they what you know, picking up on that. Um yeah, it's it's sad. So I think things like podcasts are so important now. I mean that's the new world of course, um traditional books, media, um things like social media maybe you shouldn't say, but I find I learned so much through Twitter. Um what a new yeah, sort of shout, shout out for Twitter, definitely. <laughs> I mean, I'm still fine. Yeah, I mean, I use Twitter for more of a work thing and Facebook maybe for more friends. But I find Facebook really weird these days because all I ever see is adverts for things that I aren't really interested in or a band I've once seen, what they're doing on the latest tour, every, you know. Whereas Twitter normally tends to be people you do know and you you you, you respect or whatever and you've chosen to, to look at. But for, from our industry, I mean, things like Alba's stuff or stuff that Bernard puts out on Twitter, it's fascinating stuff, you know for trends and visitor numbers and what's happening. Um, obviously, what other attractions are doing is always on there. Um, obviously, going to things like conference and things like the Association of Cultural Enterprises conference, I sadly didn't get to go this year. The first time I've not been to for about 10 years, but I always find those sorts of events fascinating because people are very honest and the speakers of those sort of conferences will get up and tell you exactly the, do, the do's and, and the don'ts because people won't always just stand up and go, this has been an amazing success. The amount of times I've heard people say, so we did this and it was an epic failure and I advise you all not to do it. And you, note to self, don't do that. Um, because people are people are very honest with their, you know, their experience. And, you know, and I think you, you learn all the time what's going on. So for me, what to, where do I learn? Well, in social media, um, you know, the, the, the emails and Blue Loops attractions management, that's another people. I mean, that's the magazine I get sent on a digital copy. You know, we seem to get every couple of months, but fascinating interviews in there with people who are, absolutely always the people at the top of their game being you know talking about and it really is you know just everywhere i would say there's stuff out there these days yeah yeah so much more than when we were starting in our careers because of course there was hardly any of this stuff well certainly in my no 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 you're absolutely right i mean um this is all kind of recent and and the information is just literally like gold gold mine stuff um something that you mentioned a bit earlier about uh mentoring um, have you had any experience in that someone mentoring? I'm oh, no, sorry, you did get someone to mentor you, but have you mentored somebody else? Or I've done a bit of that. I've anything massively formal. I mean, I've always, I've had a number of people ring up and ask questions and talk through stuff. And obviously, you know, particularly when I was at um, EH, I had quite a big team in the end because the whole of London. So lots of people would pop in and, have conversations almost like what we're having now. Well, what did you do that? Or, you know, particularly if people get frustrated that they don't feel their careers moving and how do they, how can they move on or what can they look at? Or, um, I think there's mentors out there all over the place. I mean, I've never had a formal mentor, although I, you know, I know that there's some great mentoring programs to, to fix people up with, with other people. The, I mentioned them earlier on the conference, but the Association of Cultural Enterprises has a brilliant mentoring scheme and they're, you know, always. I think it's once a year that's open for both mentors and mentees to, to apply and, and get skills both ways. So I think, um, you know, or it could be looking for someone, you know, you know, or asking for someone else, do you know anyone I could um, could mentor me or would be useful to talk to? Because yeah. I think, you know, always keen to try and give back. I think most people are always trying to keep, keen and happy to give something back to, you know, the younger generations coming through and, yeah. you know, make sure you're not pulling the ladder up behind yourself because actually you need people coming through because, you need you need good people in your business to run it, and so you want those people to be keen, enthusiastic. You know. Yeah, I yeah. think that's really interesting as well. When it, the people who to, who do gatekeep, the people who do pull the ladder up behind them, I think 
my mentality around that, and, I, and I'm sure yours would be the same, is I don't want to do my job forever. <laughs> I want to do the next job. And if I don't bring up people behind me, I'm going to find it really difficult to continue to climb myself because, yes. you know, and, and, and bringing up that talent behind you makes your life easier in the long run because the further you get on in your career, you need to have good people working with you as well. You know, there's no point sort of keeping good people out of the industry. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about some of the best people I've worked with in my career. They've mostly been people that we've been able to recruit. I mean, we've had to recruit at some point from outside, but then you, you've taken them on it. You know, they've either moved up when you moved up or they've come at a junior level and you've gone, they've got real talent and you've managed to develop them. And, you know, the best people I've worked with have come up through different levels of an organisation. So they, and obviously they didn't know the organisation. Well, you know each other, you know, they, they compile with my madness and, you know, crack on stuff as well as, you know, you know, where sometimes you bring people in new and it's a whole new persistence that you've got to learn about each other as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of sort of, a bit of crystal ball gazing of what that future might look like. Is there, <laughs> do you think your role will change? Like, do you think a director of a business will look different in the future? Do you think technology will change it or anything else that you can think of? I think it's, um, it's trying to find balances in these things, isn't it? And, you know, I think the pandemic has changed many of the ways we're working. I mean, I never had worked from home in my life before I had to I mean it might have been the odd half an hour here or there but I hated it with passion and then suddenly of course we were sent home by Boris and you know you had no choice and but then I found oh actually I can get so much more done um which then of course is finding that balance because I can sort of do that but there's lots of other staff who can't and so you know I was at um, the Heritage Alliance's conference up there and the, there was a leadership team and they made some really amazingly pertinent points and one of which was the difficulty of sites where you need to have people on and and uh, but the expectation that a lot of people have now for hybrid working particularly if they're in support functions and when I, by that I don't mean sort of support as in you know admin roles but or it might be an admin role but you know there's roles that people need to be on site every day because they've got to answer the phone they've got to deal with the public or they've got to work in a team room or whereas you know some other roles it might be that we you know you think well actually I could work from home every day of my life and it, I can still churn out the reports I need to. Um, so I think there's going to be this sort of hybrid working balance. It's going to be really tricky to, to negotiate in the future. I can't see the roles change because I think you're always going to need, if you've got a, a, vi a visitor attraction, you're always going to need a, a team of people and you're always going to need someone, you know, working, you know, pulling it together, I guess. Um, particularly, you know, you've got, you've got the trustees and the governance side as well. So there's all that side, side to run. Um, and as we touched on earlier, you always want to surround yourself with the, the best possible people because if you've not got good people around you, then you're really going to struggle. And that's, you know, I've been, again, very fortunate to have had throughout my career, um, when I was at the Mayrose and now here at Painesville, amazing teams around me, um, some of which I've inherited in time, some of which you've recruited. And, um, you know, love it when you can develop people into new roles or you can you can find skills for people and say actually that's a really good thing for you to step into i've loved it and say earlier when people have stepped up through roles or you've developed them into something new and you've watched them flourish because that's that's what it's all about isn't it really yeah absolutely i think that's kind of your role as a manager to kind of give the skills and experiences to mm. your employees so they can grow up you know um, i've had situations where i've um, trained somebody and they've gone over above me you know mm. some people might feel like oh why is that happens like for me i'm like you know what well done to you you know for learning that skill and i'm, I'm proud that i've taught you that and showed that to you and you've yeah. progressed so um that's that's really cool and that kind of leads me to our last question paul i'm you know i can listen to you for ages seriously um but it's, it's kind of like um I want to talk about the most important qualities that someone will need to have to succeed in our industry. So if you've got two or three qualities uh, or skill sets you can share with us, that'd be yeah. really great. I think you've got to like people. And I say that because the public are a fabulously wonderful bunch of, you know, bringing to you different stuff every day that you need to be able to deal with and, you know, people will want to come and talk about all sorts of things. I was out for a, a run the other day, and someone stopped me on my run 
Well, I wasn't going very fast, as you can imagine. Um, so there wasn't much to stop me. But um, to ask me some really bizarre question about the, the estate. And, and it was very strange because, firstly, I was really surprised that someone stopped you. And I was, yeah, I wasn't, I was obviously dressed in running kit and not with a badge saying, please stop me and ask tourist questions. Thanks. But of course, you know, I stopped and we chatted and managed to tell her what she needed to know. And off she went saying, all right, you've made my day. And I thought, oh, well, lovely. Um, but um, I think that's the thing is you've got to have the people skills or, or get on with people. Um, I think that's vital. It sounds really cliche, but I think you've got to have a good sense of humour. I think you've got to be able to laugh, obviously at yourself, that's very important, but also um, just laugh at things that happen because things will be hilarious and there will be struggling days and there will be challenging times. And, you know, we've all been through, everyone's had the pandemic, obviously, even even our youngest of listeners will have had gone through that recently. And you know, people have been leaving uni and they haven't had any days with anyone else and all sorts of strain, you know, all the things that we enjoyed of having years of not having. But, you know, it's, so you've got to be able to laugh at that and look back and look at stuff and see the, the funny side. I think where possible, you need to always have the half full attitude as well. You know, come on, this is good. Not always be thinking, oh dear, you know, poor, like poor old Eeyore, you know, woe is me. You need to sort of be sort of, well, actually, how do I see the positive in this because especially if you move into managerial roles your team will expect that they won't want to hear you moaning and telling them everything's dreadful they want to hear you say this is this is great we're going to sort this this is brilliant we're on top of this you know this is what we can do um so i think there my three things to, to that would again yeah it's is to is to be a people person laugh at yourself be very positive um and going back to what we said earlier, I think that sort of accepting challenges and saying yes is so, so vital to, to be able to crack on with. Yeah, I think there's a lot of... Um, it, I think we, things get clouded by the pandemic because you think that, you know, it was so bad and it was so um, kind of scarring for, for individuals and industry and, and whatever, is that you forget, actually, we all had crises before this, <laughs> you know, yeah. the crises and I think when we talk about you know be, people being resilient and positive mm. about work and you know you do have to come with a sense of humor because you know what shit does happen that you're not expecting and actually I think a lot of that people think oh it's got to be pandemic sized and it might not be you know I worked yeah. in an aquarium and you'd come in one day and someone had forgot to turn a tank off and you'd be a foot underwater and what are you going to do if you don't laugh about it you know I think there's it, not everything has to be a huge disaster, but you also need to be able to have a bit of a sense of humour when those disasters come, because they will yeah. inevitably. You're right, absolutely. And there will be stuff that really challenges you. I mean, things like, you know, I was working in Wellington Arch on 9-11, you know, that was suddenly, well, what on earth is going on? The world's in Korea, you know, real, you know, we London went silent, and we were, but we were hosting an event that night for the um, British Guild of Travel Writers, and it's sort of like, well, does it go on? Does it not go? You know, so and you're balancing stuff, and that that you know, major world event, but you're panicking slightly about whether the caterers are still going to turn up to the wine and the canapes, and if the event's still going to go. You know, it's this strange thing that you have these. I mean, we had a really horrible. We have a bit of an issue with flooding here at Payne's Hill. Um, and we had a flood. The the, the river is, is known as the River Mole, I and mean, it's underwater for lots of it. And but it is when it come when it gets comes up, it really does, and it really causes problems because it floods. And, it, and it's my first experience of flooding ever. And we had it was just before Christmas, literally just before Christmas. Father Christmas was in the grotto doing his you know ho 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 bit. We had a little land train travelling around the site to drop kids off at the grotto, and then the, the event had gone fabulously. And then. The morning, we were sort of looking at the river, and it's got up a bit high, you know, it was a bit, and by 12 o'clock, it broke slightly in one area. By one o'clock, the whole thing flooded. There was barely see the path, and, you know, I was driving a buggy trying to evacuate Santa, some elves and various things around the estate. While the water's coming in, you think, this feels like some sort of ride that would be on a Chessington, you know, where the water's flowing. But it's a controlled situation. You're on a track, and you barely know what they're doing here. Whereas here, I'm driving for this water, everything in, this is probably the most stupid, unsafe thing I've ever done. Um, and, and of course, it was complete panic. We then had, we then were mm. dealing with the public, the old, as we told you now, with, um, so we're on, you know, we put on social media that we've had to close, floods, we're doing pictures. One woman phone, put in and said to, oh, this is dreadful, you've closed. What, what am I supposed to tell my children? They're coming tomorrow to see Father Christmas. And it was brilliant, because this is why I love the public, because the public did our job for us. 
the, they just started, they all started answering this woman, you know, just saying, it's not their fault. Look, it's, it's flooded. You know, how could they possibly have done anything else? And then we had this, then one woman came on from somewhere at one of the you know, poor African nations saying that the kids here won't even have any Christmas presents. You know, why are you complaining about this site having a, you know, having, and it was, we just sat in the afternoon while all this was going on going, well, we've got a lot of problems, but this, these people are actually answering this one woman for us. But we did, you know, we tried to, we tried to not let anyone disappointed. So we got Father Christmas over to dry land and we were letting people come in and just still meet him. So people are already traveling wrong. God, the complaints we got, that it wasn't the experience. You think, oh, you know, we really had tried to do something to say, you know, so your kids did not see him. And, but, but, you know, it, it, it's these things that do, that do make you think. And, and yeah. also, and also now really now when we're planning this stuff, the flooding comes into our equation. What is our, what is our, plan b for flooding so if we've got a trail around the site okay where are we moving it to if this happens because we've got stung um you know and all these things happen and you you just have to sometimes just laugh about it i had um yeah i think that that thing of thinking you know while you're while you're doing whatever it is you're doing whilst you're evacuating santa or wet vacking (laughs) or whatever it is that you you've come into (laughs) is you will look back on this stuff and laugh eventually like it might yeah. not be today yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but if you don't laugh about it in the future you're never going to come back to work again like, and sometimes yeah. it's just like that evening where you sat with the team and good god how did that we um when i worked at kenwood i was managing london's historic properties three h and we put on concert series and one of the um opening nights was uh was was the legends of tom jones um and uh it was a really weird day because it was beautiful sunshine but we knew it was going to tip it down that night because the weather map just was showing this horrible band of rain. And I remember sat on the stage about three o'clock in the afternoon with my colleague Dan, and we just both had a coffee, and we just like, it was not a cloud in the sky. It was just like, how is this going to turn? And, of course, that night it, it started um, it started raining, um, needless to say. Tom came on a bit late, which was a bit annoying, but there we go. Um, he did a good set, actually. It was really good. But um, just towards the end of it, I got this phone call to go backstage not from a sort of jolly old backstage party. It was um, that the mayor and the ex-mayor had somehow managed to get into a fight with a bloke with an umbrella who then uh, then made some unfortunate turns. And so I'm backstage in the pacing rain. I'd had a couple of beers by because I was off duty, technically. You know, I wasn't working that night. I was not managing it. I was there as a, you know, to, to liaise with some guests early on. And there I was trying to deal in the middle of the night with, what might come on social media because it was then early terms of that. So these things are always you're always gonna have these fun stories and um but you know for years to come we can you can dine out on the Tom Jones um instant yeah. or you know. um, one one day you'll be telling it on a podcast or something. <laughs> yeah people yeah we think it's there. But it was funny because you sort of like then I'm trying to unpick it the following day and um I remember something you said about a mentor of my ex boss who used to have this job and had uh, gone on to what was she doing at that point? She's gone on so many fabulous stuff since then. She's running the OT for a while and then working with Floyd Webber and everything else. But she's, um, I ran, I texted her in the morning because she had sort of my guest seats with some friends. And I was like, oh, I don't suppose she saw anything of this incident, did you? Within 20 minutes, she'd rung me. I was in the supermarket during the week shop. She rung me and she just like, for the next 25 minutes, was like, right, so you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Have you asked this question? And it was just the best phone call ever because it was like, no, I haven't really thought of that. And it was just so typical of her to just be a, immediately thinking of things that I hadn't thought of, but also I think nothing of on a Saturday morning phoning me up and saying, this is what you need to do. And I think that's where, you know, you, you work with people and, you know, I, I wouldn't be where I was if I hadn't worked for her. So it's, it's you know, brilliant relationship we still having. Some funny times, those Kenwood concerts, people's odd <laughs> riders and things like that. I won't yeah, say I that. Think, <laughs> I think on my list of advice for people is don't work anywhere that does concerts. <laughs> <laughs> would be in my my experience of concerts and generally i think most people's experience of running concerts is just just don't do it there's my career advice for you all kids don't do you it. know what though i think some of the best times i had exciting times through a concert series is in the build-up as well and learning a lot about the industry because i've always been a massive music fan as you know kind of talked about it before but you know i'm love going to gigs and doing stuff so actually learning about the industry a little bit of how it's promoted how they what you know how they negotiate with artists and how that all worked was quite fascinating this is a few years ago now and we've you know we've got mini series coming up at Payne's Hill this summer so we're doing summer lates um we we've gone 
completely down the tribute band route this year because it's small, small attendances. We're not going to have big artists, but you know, we found that you know, that that worked really well last summer when we did the tribute night. So, you know, if you stand towards the back, you can think you're putting on Bon Jovi and um, ACDC. In fact, a woman stopped me in the tearing the other day and asked me, I hope she's not listening to this podcast, but said, Is this the real Bon Jovi coming? And I was like, Yes, of course, for £12.50 a ticket in our field at the back, you know, with a very small stage. He's a big fan of pain till I hear. So he loves it. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> John Bon Jovi's always coming alongside ACDC, Elton John. Oh, and um, Fleetwood Mac. You know all these bands. Amazing. Are but yeah, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's a great. You know, in our industry as well, it's always trying to vary what you do because actually you want to always be attracting different audiences. And if you put on concerts or you put on theatre, and it just brings different people in. And I think you know we. You know, if you're in the heritage industry or you're running a park or attraction, you know, you need to be varying your audience. And that's why I think it's so important that you, you are always doing different stuff and you're and you're always trying to look at what other people are doing. And that's interesting. How could we do that? And, and at the same time, yeah, we've got another site coming to see us recently because they were really impressed with our fairy doors. And we we're like, well, you know, come come up and learn about it. You know, we, you're nowhere near us. So it's actually quite an honour. You've looked and seen what we've done and thought it's impressive and you want to come and do it yourself. So Lovely. Let's show you around and show you what we did. And I hope you might put it on better and we'll come and learn from you. So. <laughs> oh. um, so you bring me to my my final, final question, Paul. This, I, I mean, like uh, Carl said, we could we could talk forever. I know the three of us. Yeah, we can. Um, anyway, but um, if people do want to come and find you and ask you some questions about Fairy Doors or John Bon Jovi or whatever it might be that they feel... I'm asking, I, I've never out. met John Bon Jovi, but there's a bloke called Dave who looks a bit like him and performs really well. Oh, is well. it? Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, whereabouts could they find you? Where, where's the, the best place to come looking for you? Uh, Twitter's always a good place. You find me on there. That's, uh, I'm always happy that. LinkedIn, of course. Or, you know, if you want to drop me an email, uh, Paul Griffiths at Maintilda.co.uk. Um, but Twitter's, uh, you know, look, look up on there and we can go from there. Brilliant. That's great. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm really a big fan of your show. So thanks for having me on. It's it's a real Um, pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Brown Sign Project. In our next episode, we're going to talk to the founder of Reworks Consulting, Sarah Briggs. And thanks again to our series sponsors, Staff Savvy and Retail Integration. The Brown Sign Project was edited by Paul Tyler. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Brown Sign Pod, or you can find us on LinkedIn.